And today we start a brand new series for us learning how to say yes to God to the most important things in our life. It's going to be an incredible six weeks studying through the life of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Six weeks from now we'll start a new series um, called Shipwrecked. And we're going to talk about what happens when life falls apart. It's our goal this fall as a church to kind of pour into you in two areas spiritually. We want, to, we want to direct you to what God has called you to do in life so that by the time you get to the end of the year, you can look at the rest of your life and say, I know this is what God has called me to do. But secondly, we want to do some, some maintenance work on those of us and our friends and family members who've just had everything fall apart. So we're not just directing the future. We want to minister in right now. We'll do that the second half of this fall. During that shipwreck series, uh, we have a biblical archaeologist by the name of Bob Cornute coming in. Uh, He's kind of known as the the Indiana Jones of the Christian world. Uh, He has researched and found the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul that we'll study in the book of Acts. The cool thing about Bob Cornute is he's actually, uh, he was trained as a detective and a crime scene investigator. And he began to look through the New Testament of the, through the lens of, can you really prove any of this stuff? Can any, can any of this stuff be proven real beyond a reasonable doubt? And he began to go through the stories in the New Testament that, that we were given enough evidence about that you could either prove them or disprove them. One of those is the shipwreck of Paul. So he's going to be here to talk to us about why we can trust the Bible. It's going to be an incredible day. Those of you who have friends and family members... Uh, who don't believe the Bible, who don't believe it can be trusted. Just the history and the archaeology that Cornuke's going to bring is going to be awesome on October um, 11th. But today we start a new series in Acts chapter 17 um, called The Best Yes. If you have your Bible, go to Acts 17 with me. Uh, and we're going to actually continue. I was going to say we're going to get the party started this fall, but the kids already began it. If you don't have a Bible, you can fire up the Bible app on your phone or tablet. Our ushers are coming down the aisles. Uh, they've got Bibles you can use. Every Sunday, we're going to open God's Word. Uh, we're going to read it. We're, we're going to underline things. We're going to circle things. So if you need a Bible, just wave at them. We've given away more than 1,000 since our church began just like this. And whether you forgot yours and just want to have one in your hand today or whether you don't have one and want one, um, just let our ushers know, and we'd love to give you one. And in Acts chapter 17, we see, we see the creation of a church and a statement made about that church that I'll be honest with you, it gives me as a pastor, um, it gives me great envy. I read Acts chapter 17, and I think, boy, I hope one day our church looks a little bit like that. Because Paul heads to a city called Thessalonica. Uh, Today it's called Thessaloniki. It's still a town in Greece that you can go and visit. And he begins a church there, and what happens in that town, um, according to Scripture, was heard about, all over the world. And here's how Acts chapter 17 reads. We'll go through verses 1 through 9, and then we'll come back and teach a little bit. If you haven't already, make sure you pull your sermon notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along uh, through our our message today. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so over a course of three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason... And some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. 
And Jason has welcomed them into his house, and they're defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. Now let me set the scene to get to the statement that I hope maybe is made about our church one day in this community. Let me set the scene for you. The city that we're in is Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a great city. Thessalonica was a historical city. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. Macedonia was named for Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. So it was just in the ancient world, this place was an important place because of the, the historical characters attached to it. Uh, the capital of Macedonia it was one of the most important cities in ancient Greece. It had nearly 250,000 people, and it was named after. So Macedonia named after Alexander the Great's dad, Thessalonica at the time, named after Alexander the Great's stepsister. So this was a place that was important to him and a place that he kind of marked. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest, uh, basically, generals in the history of wartime, um, said, this, this place, people are going to remember me forever here. In this city of nearly a quarter million people 2,000 years ago was one of the most well-known cities on planet Earth. So that's the city. The stage is a synagogue. We are tucked inside this major city, known throughout the world in this little building known as a synagogue. This is the stage where ministry is going to take place in Acts chapter 17. A synagogue was a Jewish place of learning, which in the ancient days needed 10 Jewish men to be established in a community. So you see that Paul passed through Amphipolis, he passed through Apollonia. Probably there were not 10 devout Jewish men in those Greek communities. There was no synagogue, so there was no place for Paul to to enter the stage to begin to talk about Jesus. So he went to a big city where they had at least 10 men who believed in the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament, um, and they studied together on Sabbath in the synagogue. The synagogues were established during the Israeli exile, Because the Israelis used to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. It was the only place you could worship. But when the temple was torn down, the religious people said, where are we going to talk about the Word of God? Where are we going to learn the Word of God? Where is someone going to teach us the Word of God? So they started basically what we would see as local churches versus the worship of the temple at the temple in Jerusalem. And the primary purpose of the synagogue was learning and discussion of Old Testament law. And what's funny is the New Testament church blew up the Old Testament synagogue. They changed forever ministry in the synagogue. The synagogue, when the New Testament church found it, was a place where religious people came to talk about religious things, debate about religious things, discuss religious things, and non-religious or irreligious people weren't even invited in the house. As a matter of fact, men and women didn't even worship together. They had separate rooms in the synagogues. The synagogue was a place where religious people kind of came together to be religious, and then they, then they would leave, but, but people from the outside were not really allowed in, nor were women at the time. And sadly, the New Testament church that blew up this concept that the place of worship was just for religious people to talk about religious things, the church kind of changed that. We see it in Acts chapter 17. Some non-religious people were curious and they came in. The church changed this concept, but 2,000 years later, a lot of churches find themselves in the exact same spot. The church is for Christians to come together and talk about Christian things and to act like Christians, to dress like Christians. And if you're not a Christian, you're not really welcome in the church. But if you want to become a Christian, then you can come to our church. So, so what the New Testament church worked so hard to kind of destroy a place that was just for spiritual people 
that unspiritual people couldn't come to, the church has kind of morphed back to. And, it's, and, and to be honest with you, it's, it's difficult to allow the church to become something different than that. When we started our church, we started a church saying we wanted to reach people who didn't go to church. Saying we wanted to see people far from God come in and be a part of our church. What we didn't realize is they would have to be a, a part of our church, some of them for a long time. Some of you have been a part of our church for years and you've still not really given your heart to Jesus but you found comfort and you found a place in our congregation. And what we found out is that church looks a lot different when you do church with religious people who have a heart for people who, who aren't there yet. I remember one of the first small groups that we did. In every small group, every Sunday school class I'd ever been a part of, usually people were wearing suit and ties. Usually it was on Sunday morning at the church. Usually people would bring their Bible and you come around and drink coffee and talk about the Bible. And we said, we want to do small groups different. We want small groups to be groups in the community where people just get to know each other and where people who aren't Christians feel comfortable um, in the small group as well, sitting and kind of seeing what a faith life and faith community looks like. And I remember at one of our first small groups walking outside as the pastor holding my Bible and there's a new guy standing there drinking a beer, and there's another new person standing there smoking a cigarette, and we're kind of talking, and I'm thinking, this looks different. Um, but I didn't know whether it was good or bad, because I thought, you know, this is, is this allowed? Is this not allowed? I was so new to having a heart to have a church that, that saw people far from God be a part of that church until they could get to know Jesus. I remember going back and calling my church planner, church planning coach, and saying, hey, I've, I've, got, I've got an issue, and I don't know what to do. And I said, what's that? And I said, well, are, are people allowed to drink and smoke at small groups? Like, is that, is that okay? And he was like, well, do, do you have a desire for people who drink and smoke to learn about Jesus if they don't know him yet? I said, yes. He said, well, of course they have to come to your small group. He said, now, you didn't pass it out, did you? And I said, I don't think, I don't, I don't think so. But the person whose house it was at, maybe, but I'm not sure. I don't think so, but I will tell them not to do that next time. Um, and, and I said, you know, what are, um, what are our people going to think? So I'm not worried about turning off people who don't know Jesus. I'm worried about the Christians in our church saying we don't want people like that hanging around with us. And he said, well, do you want Christians in your church that don't like people who don't know Jesus yet? And I said, no, I don't. But I really need them to give in the offering. So, you know, I don't want to run them off. I mean, just being honest, right? Like, I'm just, just being honest with you. It's like I need the Christians to come and, and help us. The other people spend their money on cigarettes and booze. So like, you know, it's going to take a combination of the, of the two. Um, and he's like, listen, just lead your Christians to love people that aren't just like them because without Jesus, we would all be like people who are far from God. So we've got to give time for people to know Jesus. This, oh, we enter a stage in a synagogue where the story gets blown up simply because some people who didn't used to be religious kind of got attached to who Jesus was. And that's number three. We see this story. This story enters the stage of the synagogue in the city of Thessalonica. And the story is this. Jesus is the Messiah. The story is that the message and the fulfillment and the purpose of the Old Testament law had finally been accomplished through Jesus. You say, well, what was the fulfillment and the purpose of the law? The entire Old Testament pointed to a scenario where people were connected to God in a life-giving and a life-transforming relationship. The law was supposed to lead you to connect to God through a life-giving and a life-transforming relationship. The Messiah would come, and where the law fell short, the Messiah would kind of push through the Spirit of God that He would pour out on all humanity, according to the prophet Joel, would allow people to connect to God in a meaningful way. And the Apostle Paul came to the synagogue with this story that this has finally been accomplished, and now anybody can connect 
to God, regardless of whether you're Jewish, regardless of whether you're Gentile, regardless of whether you're a man, regardless of whether you're a woman, regardless of whether you're religious, regardless of whether you're not religious, regardless of what your past and your history and your background is, you can connect to God in a life-transforming and life-giving way through Jesus. And you know what? The outsiders, when the outsiders begin to hear the story and follow Jesus, this massive city... This little place that only 10 people took to establish within this massive city, this little place that started with 10, this massive city began to be impacted by the story that Jesus was the Messiah and anyone and everyone could connect to him. And as this town of nearly a quarter million people got to a point of a fevered pitch, they made this statement about the Christians. They made this statement about the church. And here's what they said about the church in their town. They said, this church has turned the world upside down. In Acts 17, 6, in the New King James versions, we see one of the best Greek renditions of what was actually said about the apostles in this church in Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, 6, in the New King James version, you'll see it on the screen behind me, it says, when they didn't find Paul and Silas, that's them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here too. People looked at the church of Jesus and they said, man, they are flipping, they are doing things different. They're taking things away. They've always been and they're twisting them upside down. This church, when Jesus' church hits a community, man, everything is turned upside down. Now, here's the cool thing that I want you to see about this. I need you to notice this wasn't the church's mission statement for itself. We exist to turn the world upside down. Instead, this was the community's view of the church's impact. The church didn't say, we want to turn the world upside down. The church said, we want to live for Jesus and do what he tells us to do. The community looked at living for Jesus, how Jesus said to live for him, and they said, man, that's crazy. The way you live life, the way you love people, the way you give forgiveness, the way you allow everyone to be included, that's not the way it's always been done. You guys are turning the world upside down. So you, you've heard our mission statement today from Scott, today from Addie. You hear it every Sunday. We exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. That's our goal. But we'll know that goal is becoming accomplished when people who don't go to our church look at our church and say, let me tell you what happens there. That is a church where people who used to have no connection to God, somehow felt comfortable to have a connection to God and their life began to change and they began doing things in this community to impact others in a radical way. When they begin to say that about us, not when we begin to say it about ourselves, we find ourselves successful. We've said all year we're looking to the book of Acts for inspiration and for information. And what we can do is we can look at a city, Thessalonica, and we can say we have our city, Lee Summit, Kansas City. We can look at the stage, the synagogue, and say, we've got our stage. We, we, we've got this corporate group that meets together in Summit Lakes Middle School right now on Sunday mornings. We can look at the story, and the story hasn't changed. Jesus is for everyone. And if you will follow Jesus, he will connect you to God in a life-giving and a life-transforming way. But what we're looking for is their statement. What we're looking for is a way to live our life and lead our church in such a way that the community looks at us and says, man... They're doing it differently than everyone else does it. They're turning the world upside down. How do we have a church that turns the world upside down? Acts doesn't give us a lot of information, but the New Testament does. Acts doesn't tell us much about what happened in Thessalonica, about nine verses. But later, the Apostle Paul's writings to the church in Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians, 
They, they reveal to us some key things that happen, and I want to share three of those with you today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to flip back just a few pages to the right. You're going to go past Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And you're going to find yourself at First Thessalonians. And in Acts, we see nine verses about this church that got started that, that took a small corner of this great city, known as a place that was near and dear to the heart of Alexander the Great, one of the greatest generals in the history of the world. And this little community of what was at first ten men who said we want to learn about God was impacting an entire city. How? What happened? First Thessalonians gives us some keys to that, and I want to show you those keys. I'm going to give you the key, then I'm going to show you how the Apostle Paul explained that to us. Here's what you need to know first about the message of Jesus in Thessalonica. The message of Jesus came with power, it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with deep conviction, according to the Apostle Paul. When he went into the town of Thessalonica, and he began to talk about Jesus in the synagogue as the Messiah, and a number of prominent women, and a number of God-fearing Greeks, and a couple Jewish men said, we want to follow that, and then the entire city ended up happening. How did that happen? Apostle Paul said, here's how that happened. Remember 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. He said, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. When it comes to the gospel... When it comes to the gospel turning your world upside down and when it comes to a church living out the gospel so the church turns the world upside down, it's one thing to hear about the gospel. It's another thing to talk about the gospel. But it's a powerful thing to be about the gospel. To actually experience change in your own life and have a desire to see change in a community because of who Jesus is and how Jesus would want to impact the place that you live. And the Apostle Paul said it wasn't just about words. It wasn't what I said. It wasn't about what you, what you heard. It's about what happened to you. It's about what you did. It's about what we did. And this message became powerful because Jesus was real. The power was the change. The power was the ability to move forward and do something more than just be hearers. And Romans 1.16 says this about the power of the gospel. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You see, the real gospel is powerful. And if you can he sit and hear the gospel week after week and nothing changes in your life, then you have heard the gospel, but it's not come in power to you. But if when you hear the gospel, things begin to change, and maybe at the rate that a glacier slides down a mountain, very, maybe very, very slowly, maybe so much that it can't even be measured by those of us looking at your life. But when the gospel begins to change your life, you know the power of the Holy Spirit is being released in you. And the Apostle Paul said our gospel came with power and our gospel came with the Holy Spirit. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is our spiritual umbilical cord? The spiritual connection that we have to God is the Holy Spirit. Do you know there's this imaginary connection that the Christian has to the God of the universe at all times? We can't see it, we can't touch it, but it is around our life. And according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit is the thing that allows God to be connected to us and to feed us the nutrients that we need while we're in the womb of faith growing until we mature and one day we're with Jesus. That's probably the best picture that we can give for how God works in our life. 
It's like there's this Holy Spirit that's unseeable, but it's connected to God and it's connected to us. And it allows God to connect to us and to move us at key points in our faith journey, at, at key decision times in our faith journey, at key depression and discouragement, discouragement times in our faith journey. It's like God has the ability to funnel part of him to part of us because of this connection that we have to God through the Holy Spirit. We've got this eternal connection to God. We feel like at our church, we've been talking the last six weeks because we're always refining how we do things to make them better. And we feel like our Sunday services at this point in time are not set up the best way for the Spirit of God to flow into the people in our church. I don't know if you've, if you've ever had a hose out washing the car and, and there's not much really water power coming out and you trace the hose back and you find out you've got a kink in the hose and when you release that kink, it's like, it's like the water just flows out more freely. We feel like we've got some kinks in our service right now that hold the Holy Spirit back a little bit. And a lot of them are just because when we started our church, we had to use our service for everything. We had to use it to get first-time guest information. We had to use it to get people to sign up for small groups and to sign up to serve. And really, our service was how we connected to people in every way. So we've designed a service that you kind of worship a little bit, then you get some information. Then you sing a few more songs, and then you preach. But then we've got to stop and give you more information because the reality is half of you weren't even here to welcome because so many people come late. Not you, but probably the person beside you. Don't look at them. Uh, but again, it's prob- probably true. If you're sitting in the back row, we heard your chair go down during the third song, and we were thankful for that disruption. Um, but, you know, people, people don't get here on time. And we've said, you know, we don't have a service designed to allow people to literally float out of church because they are so filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's change that. So we've been talking about how to add some more worship up front, how to add some more worship at the end, how to change our announcement, how to build some systems that let our systems connect people to our church rather than our services because we've said this is the time where we experience worship, where, where we experience God, where we touch God through the Holy Spirit in our life. So as we move past Labor Day and beyond, you're going to want to be here on time because we're going to do things differently. I think different is going to be better and I think it's going to leave a more powerful imprint on our life when we remove some kinks that allow the Holy Spirit to flow a little freer in our service. Why is the Holy Spirit important? Romans 8.26 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Do you have any spiritual weaknesses? I do. Thank God I have a helper. We don't even know what we ought to pray for sometimes, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Our connection to God, God's connection to us, is the Holy Spirit that we have to live through. But then Paul said the gospel came with deep conviction. These are two words that are scary in the life of any human being. Because deep conviction, translated properly, means being cut to the heart enough to change. It literally means being made to feel badly enough about something deep in your soul that something has to change. In Acts chapter 2, when the gospel was given, it actually said the people were cut to their hearts and they said, what do we have to do to be saved? God made such an impression on them that they said, I can't live my life the way I've been living it anymore. The apostle Peter was described in the book of Luke by the author Luke of weeping bitterly, being bitter in spirit when God convicted him of something in his life that was going on that he shouldn't do anymore. And it was like God just literally ripped his heart in half and said, this isn't going to come back together till this thing, this person, this situation is healed. There was deep conviction. And you know what? I, I, hate, I hate being in church and preaching anything that would ever make people feel bad unless the Holy Spirit is convicting someone. Because here's what we learn spiritually. 
It feels great to feel bad when you know that God is working. It feels great to feel bad if it's God working in your life. According to Scripture, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 17. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Repentance means change. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. You see, it feels good to feel bad when feeling bad is because God is knocking on the door of your heart saying, when are you finally going to get the garbage out of your life? And you sit Sunday after Sunday feeling bad about something. You say, church makes me feel bad. No, God makes you feel bad because he wants you to feel good and have no regret. You sit week after week after church and say, how much longer am I going to let my marriage continue in this state? And you say, I don't like going to church because that guy makes me feel bad. No, God makes you feel bad because he wants you to feel good and he doesn't want you to have any regret. So you come to church and hear a, hear a Bible reading challenge offered and you feel bad because you failed on your last one. That's God and that should feel good because it will lead to a life without regret. You see the offering basket go by again without throwing anything in it and you feel bad and you say, I hate passing the offering baskets because they make me feel bad. No, God makes you feel bad because he wants you to feel good and he wants you to leave no regret in your life. See, deep conviction changes people. And what we need to do when we are deeply convicted is not run away, but we need to run towards God. And say, God, there's a little tear in my heart. And every Sunday it gets a little bigger. And God, I feel like you're going to rip my heart out of my chest if I don't do something about this. And God says, that's the plan, actually. I would like to rip that heart out of your chest. And then I'd like to put a new one in your chest. And I'd like you to follow me and have a life that felt bad for a minute but feels good and leaves no regret for an eternity. Paul said the gospel came with deep conviction. And man, it changed people's lives. They felt bad for a little bit. But man, it feels good to feel bad when you know that God is working. So the gospel came with power, with the Holy Spirit. The gospel came with deep conviction. Key number two, we see the church responded with purpose and with consistency. This wasn't a couple services that went well, but then every, everything backed off. The church responded not only to Jesus, to live for Jesus. Not only did they have issues of the heart, that they were deeply convicted about the change, but their life and their mission began to change. The only way a city of a quarter million people, the only way that a city of a quarter million would know what was going on in a place that started with 10 would be if that small place did some big things a little bit at a time and very consistently. And according to 1 Thessalonians, this is a church that once they got to know Jesus, they got to work for Jesus. Look at verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul said, we remember. We don't know how long he was there, but we know Acts gives it nine verses. We remember, Paul says, before our God and Father, your work produced by your faith, your labor prompted by your love, your endurance inspired by your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul looked back at the church in Thessalonica. He looked back at a church that was known for turning the world upside down. He said, how did that happen? Here's how that happened. The work, the effort, and the consistency of this church in Thessalonica, it captured the attention of the world. You say, Christian, isn't that an overstatement? Possibly, except that's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. He said, the way you've lived your life, the way you've served people, the way you've been consistent in your purpose, and it may have started very small, but you just keep every year doing those same projects. People around the world are starting to hear about this. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia, in Achaia. That's where the church in Corinth was. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known 
everywhere. Therefore, we don't even need to say anything about it. People all over the place are talking about your church. So a couple weeks ago, I stood before the Lee Summit City Council. We're, we're working through getting our building plan approved. And I'd never been to city council before to stand. It, it was a tad intimidating looking at all these people sitting up there in their chairs. And we were asking some questions about something. And at one point, one of the councilwomen there looked at me, um, and she said, I've heard a lot about your church. And I thought, oh, no. You know, she's looking at me, and I, you know, I'd not met her, and she'd not met me. And she said, it's all been good. And I thought, oh, thank God. Um, and it was like, okay, Lord, thank you that people all over Lee Summit that we've not met are hearing good things, maybe about the work and the effort and the consistency of our church. We're not going to be right for everyone. And I'm sure there's some people who could say, I've heard some things about your church and they're not so good. But that even one would say, I've heard a lot of things about your church from a lot of people. And they're all good. Tells us we're on the right track, like this church in Thessalonica, to maybe doing something that will turn our world upside down. But maybe the key to this church was the spiritual focus of the individuals. Because we see key number three, the church was committed to focus on three things. And this is where today's message gets out of the history book and it jumps to today in your life. This is where really we we quit talking about what happened in Thessalonica and we begin to talk about what's happening here. Because it was the individuals in the church, their focus on three things that Paul said made this church special. And I want to ask you this morning, are you focused on these three things in your life? Say, Christian, what are these three things? Number one, we see the church in Thessalonica was able to turn the world upside down because each individual had an inward focus. We see this church was able to flip its world upside down because every member of that church was continually focused on what God was doing in them. They had an inward focus. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.1. The Apostle Paul, as he wraps up this book, he reminds them what made them great Christians in a great church. And here's what he says. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Are you living a life right now that pleases God? Do you have actions and reactions and interactions on a daily basis with people that please God? Do you have a quiet, private time in your Christian life on a daily basis that pleases God? Do you have faith and trust in the unknown matters at life that give you a peace in your heart that pleases God? Do you have an inward focus continually looking at your life and what in your life needs to change so that you can please God? Because Paul said if you do, you've got to focus on that more and more. If you want to be a Christian that turns the world upside down, who's a part of a church that together turns the world upside down, it's got to be about you first, what's happening right inside here. It's got to be on those little cuts that God started making on your heart, those little conviction moments where God's been saying, you've got, you got to stop doing that. Where God's been saying, you've got to start doing that. And every Sunday, instead of leaning into the deep conviction, you put a Band-Aid on. Or maybe you try to get some super glue and close, close that wound up like we do when our kids fall off the monkey bars when we're little. You just want to close the cut. When God is saying, don't, don't close it, just, just open it wide, just deal with it once and for all. That habit, that attitude, that relationship, 
those actions, reactions, that person, deal with it once and for all. Establish an inward focus where every day you're saying, God, what do you want in me that's different? God, what do you want in me that's better? God, where do I need to get better? The church in Thessalonica, they had this inward focus that, that made them radical Christians. But secondly, the church was able to turn the world upside down because each individual had an outward focus. It wasn't just about them. We, we could become that New Testament synagogue that just gets together and talks about ourselves and what we need to do spiritually. But the church in Thessalonica was better than that. They had this outward focus. They realized there were people outside of their church that needed the impact of Jesus. So Paul says this in verses 9 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, now about your love for one another. We don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you to. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you won't be dependent upon anybody. Did your daily life this week make someone think well of Jesus? Did you do something this week that when someone hung up the phone with, with you, who maybe is not even a Christian, they said, thank, thank God for someone who would treat me like that instead of like this. Are you a businessman who is a kind, gentle soul in this building and just a cutthroat shark outside of it? Are you aware that outsiders are impacted by your faith and your life and your language and your heart and your smile and your encouragement and your patience and your level of joy and your interactions and in your invitations? Are you aware that we have to be individuals that are focused outward all the time so that we can have influence on people in our life spiritually? Because the church in Thessalonians was focused inward, but they were focused outward. And then finally, this was a church that was able to turn the world upside down because each individual had an upward focus. They were focused inward on what God needed to do in them. They were focused outward on who they needed to reach, but then they were focused upward. There was this reality that this life is ending and there's another life after this. And what happens, God, after this life? And does anything in this life matter for the next one? So Paul addresses questions about those who had died. And about the end of our life, to focus us upward in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14. Paul said, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And Paul goes on to say, if we'll focus upward, we'll realize there's an eternal life that, lives, that leads us to live on purpose in this life. You see, Paul talked to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, you've turned the world upside down because of the people that you are. And you're people who live with an inward focus, an outward focus, and an upward focus. And here's what I believe today. If we will all focus in and out and up, one day we're going to stand before Jesus having run our race well. Have you this week stopped to think about one day, the fact that one day you're going to have a conversation with Jesus? 
Have you thought this week about maybe what he looks like? I think all the time about what Jesus looks like because I don't think probably any painting that's ever been made in history has got it right. I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to meet Jesus. I can't wait to talk to Jesus. I can't wait to hug Jesus. But I know my first position with Jesus is to stand before him and answer for my life. That's my first interaction with Jesus. Here's how scripture says it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You are going to stand before Jesus one day and talk about the inward focus that, that you nailed or that you ignored. To talk about the outward focus that you took advantage of or, or that you never really thought about. And to talk about the upward focus None of us should stand surprised before Jesus because if we have an upward focus, we know that that's coming. And Paul said, man, when I think about an upward focus, it motivates me to get it right. He said this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, don't you know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Like, man, be the best Christian you can be. Live your Christian life in a way that you'll want to be rewarded one day for your Christian life. But not everyone does that. It was an NFL linebacker this week that made the news. He's all over the news cycle, sports and secular, for what he did with his sons. His name's James Harrison. He's really not a role model. But what he did this week was interesting. He's an all-pro linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's won a couple Super Bowls. He's got some young boys that participate in sports. And last week, at the end of their sports season, they were given participation trophies for a season which ended in their team really winning nothing and them not qualifying for any special awards. So he took pictures of the trophies and he wrote on his Instagram account that he was returning them because his boys didn't play anything to win a participation medal, but to win. And when his boys had won something, he would let them keep the trophies, but as long as it was just about participating, they weren't allowed to be rewarded. All kinds of people commenting on how great this was, on how terrible this was. But as I was preparing this weekend's message, I thought about it spiritually. And I thought, how many people in our church are playing for a spiritual participation award? How many people are ignoring every spiritual challenge that's been offered today because you're thinking, I was there. How many of you, your goal spiritually every week is just to participate, just to be there? And one day you're going to stand before God and God's going to say, what did you do? And you're going to be like, well, I was on the team, you know? Like, don't I, don't I get a medal? Hey, you might get heaven, but there's so much more. Paul said, it's not just about heaven for me. I want to run in such a way that I win. So I'm going to pay attention to the inward convictions of my life. I'm going to pay attention to the outside opportunities of my life. I'm going to pay attention to the upward reality of this life that it's going to end and my life will not end up in the ground. My life will end up in the sky if I know Jesus. And one day I'm going to see him. I'm going to talk to him. And on that day, I, I don't want to win the participation award. I, I want to have done my very best in what Jesus has called me to. Some of you think, Christian, you're make, man, you're making me feel bad today. It feels good to feel bad if it's God. Because that's going to lead to a life that doesn't have sorrow, that doesn't have regret. It's going to lead to a life 
of healing. So you say, what are we going to do at Journey this school year? A new school year's begun. We're going to go to Labor Day or to May now, Memorial Day, with kind of our pants on fires. What, what are we going to do? Let's focus in this school year on Jesus and have an inward focus on what he wants to do in our lives. But let's do this too. Let's focus in this school year on Jesus and the outsiders in our life that Jesus wants us to have impact on. And let's focus in this school year on Jesus and the upward reality that one day we're going to meet him. One day we're not going to just sing about him in church. We're going to talk to him in person face to face. And that first conversation is going to be some deep convicting accountability of what we did all the times through the umbilical cord of the Holy Spirit. God told our heart to do something and we said yes or no or just ignored it completely. And as we enter this series called The Best Yes, the best yes you can ever say is a yes to follow Jesus. The best yes you can ever say is the yes to become a Christian and say, God, I'm going to give you my heart, my soul, my future. God, forgive me of the way that I've been living my life for ignoring you all of my life. The best yes you can say is the yes to give your life to Jesus and to begin a journey with him now that one day will take you upward to be with him forever. And you can say that yes today if you've never said it. Just a moment, we're going to pray. And if you're sitting in this room and you've never said yes to Jesus, if you're sitting in this room and when I talk about an upward focus, it scares you because you don't have a confidence in your soul that if today were to be your last day on planet earth, that tomorrow would be your first day in heaven with Jesus. You hope so, but you don't know for sure. Today you can say yes to Jesus and you can know that. So would you all just now bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes with me? And as we